0: Let's talk about that speech with Claire and Rachel. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Let's Talk About Speech podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Claire. And we are back for another episode. Last week, we were talking and learning all about sensory processing disorder with Rebecca Duvall Scott. So if you haven't listened yet, stop go listen, and then come back because we loved that episode. And we have so many people that have reached out on Instagram and our DMs saying that they were going to get Rebecca's book to learn more or saying thank you so much for co- um, covering this topic. So we are so happy that we could do that for you. And we learned a lot as well. So it was really a great episode. We are excited
1: for today's episode because we are going to be answering all of your wonderful questions. Thank you for sending so many in. We got more than I thought we would actually. So that's awesome. And we wanted to give our listeners and followers a chance to kind of pick our brains on topics that they really wanted to hear about um, or kind of our opinions on some parts of speech therapy. So we're really excited to go over Over those, and we're going to just dive right in. So, our first question that we had to put first was Why did you decide to become an SLP? This comes from Angela at Fired Up in Fifth. She's a fifth grade teacher, I believe. We've been in contact with her a couple of times. She gives us some really good resources for those older Mm -hmm. um, elementary kids. So thank you, Angela, for asking. Rachel, do you wanna go first?
0: Sure, I love this question. So I started out going to college at Central Michigan University fire up chips if anyone's listening, and I thought I wanted to become a teacher. So I had started the teaching program there, started taking like the basic first few courses, one of which was a special education course, which I had kind of always thought I would probably go down that path, but I just wasn't really sure what that looked like. And in the special education class, there was a segment where one whole class period, I think it was like a two-hour class once a week, Um, and one whole class period focused on physical therapy, and then next week was occupational, and then the next week was speech, and so on and so forth, but when the speech um, class came along, the professor that came in to talk about it was so moving and so inspiring that I was just kind of taken with this idea of speech therapy. It was nothing that I had really heard of before, and I was very interested in the topic as a whole. So I then signed up for the first like introductory to speech pathology course, and it was with the exact same professor, and she kind of changed my focus as a whole, and that's when I made the switch to become a speech pathologist. Now, this was in... I took that class my freshman year. I took the intro to speech pathology my sophomore year. And I actually didn't even sign my major until my junior year. But once I did and had done all of the research on the programs and understood that I would have to go on to get my master's unless I wanted to be an SLPA. But once I had all of that figured out, I was like immediately taken with the profession and so in awe of the fact that you can work with infants on feeding all the way up to like the geriatric population with post-stroke and things like that so that is definitely one thing I love about the profession as a whole
1: yeah absolutely that's awesome I love this question too just because I love speech and I feel like that's I feel like our field is filled with people that are just so passionate about speech and mm-hmm. so passionate about what they do. And I think that's amazing. Cause I don't know if you get that everywhere. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of the same. I thought I wanted to be a teacher as well, but I went into uh college undecided for my first year. So we were able to take like the undecided route. And I just picked a bunch of random things. For a while, I thought I wanted to be a social worker. I thought I could go into psych. Again, education. For a minute, I thought about broadcasting I just because I like talking. Mm -hmm. I guess that goes kind of along with speech. Um, But yeah, I considered a bunch of random things. And then it was my mom actually who I think I was just really frustrated one day, just like didn't know what I wanted to do. And she brought up going to my brother's speech therapy sessions. And I was like, I I didn't really even remember Mm -hmm. what speech therapy was as a child or knowing that it was speech therapy. But I do remember watching from a two-way mirror of him working with a woman on his speech. And now looking back on it, I think it was all, you know, meant to be, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, then never looked back. I signed my major literally the next week. And like Rachel, there has never been any doubt in my mind. I was full force, all in for speech pathology. And I feel so lucky that I was able to find a profession that I love so much.
0: Yeah. And another thing about speech is whenever you like meet a new group of friends or friends of friends and they ask what you do for a living and you say you're a speech therapist. Almost ev- almost everyone has some relation yeah. of some sort, whether it's, oh, mm-hmm. I used to go to speech therapy or mm-hmm. like you, my brother did, or yeah. my sister-in-law is a speech therapist. There's a lot of little connections. It's like an there.
1: instant connection with people. Yeah. It's very cool.
0: Yeah. That was an awesome question. So our next question came from our friend Kaylee. She is on Instagram at learn with chatterboxes. We covered her boxes on our pages and talked about those in a couple episodes, but she wanted to know if we had any fluency tips specifically for a 12 year old boy. And I love this question.
1: Yes, me too. And Rachel and I both a little, little fun fact about us. But when we were in grad school, we worked very closely in fluency and we had the opportunity to be a part of an intensive fluency program, a summer program. And then we also were supervisors. We came back and we're supervisors for the program. So um, fluency questions, send them our way because we both are pretty, comfortable with Mm -hmm. fluency, which I know you don't have a lot of, um, a lot of therapists, it's just kind of gray area. So, um, we both love the area and can give a lot of insight on this, I think, but for me, I would say education awareness strategies is the, um, the hierarchy, I guess, Mm. that I kind of go into, for lack of a better word. So I teach about what stuttering is first, and then I go into their awareness of their own speech. And then I go into strategies. And I think that's huge because you don't want to just dive in with especially a 12-year-old, on just strategies because they might not be super aware on what's happening. They may know something is off, but they may not know what it is yet. So always, always, always talk about stuttering before talking about strategies. So if my fluency kids are older, and I'm talking like eight plus is usually, so like above kindergarten maybe even above first grade um, i always start with stuttering education and i do so even if they are below this age but for the little ones it's definitely more indirect so you're not doing as direct services Mm -hmm. as i'm sure the speech pathologists have heard Um, but basically that just means with the little ones you're kind of sneaking it in there whereas the older ones you're actually talking about what stuttering is so we go over our speech helpers, we go over all the things that allow us to talk, what happens. And then we go over what stuttering is, the different types. And then at this point is when I start testing their awareness. So after we've gone over the types of stuttering moments, I'll say something like, so do you feel like the any of these happen in your speech? Or when you get stuck, does that happen? Do the sounds start repeating? Or do you feel like there's no air coming out? So we go really in depth about those stuttering types. And then I see if they can identify it in their own speech. And depending on their answer, um, that will kind of direct me to the next thing. So if, they're, if they say no, I don't hear that, then what I'll probably do is record them and we'll kind of go over recording in their speech to see if they hear something that, that way. And if they do say that they hear this happening in their speech, um, then we'll move on to more tallying, which is um, them in real time identifying when they hear a stuttering moment. So just increasing that overall awareness while we're speaking. But either way, the next step is focusing on that awareness. I also think that with an older kid, it's important to do almost an interview on their thoughts and feelings toward their speech. So there's standardized assessments that allow you to do this. For example, the Oasis O-A-S-E-S. But honestly, I don't remember what it even stands for, but mm-hmm. it, it identifies thoughts and feelings in children and adults with stuttering. But if you've ever given it, you know, it's really awkward and it's really long. Mm -hmm. The questions are just kind of uncomfortable and, you know, they are things that have to be asked, but the the way they ask them, it's just, it's kind of hard, especially if it's a 12 year old or younger for sure. Um, and it just takes forever. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I usually make up my own for kids that are, um, this age because it's just a little bit more effective that way. But it's just important to get a feel for the child's overall emotional involvement with their stuttering. So I always um, want them to tell me, you know, what's the hardest speaking situation? So where do you feel like it's the hardest to get your words out? Who do you feel like it's the hardest with to talk? Um, Things like that. So kind of getting a feel for where they're at emotion wise with their speech. I always also have a goal for my older kids to talk to someone new with me. So if you're in the clinical setting, this could be a coworker or an office aide. If you're in the school, this could be literally anyone in the school over telepractice. I've had them do phone calls or I'll have, uh, I just did this the other day, give them a special guest so they can pick a cousin, a friend, mom or dad. I don't care, but I send them the zoom access so that they can get into the meeting And we practice our strategies with that special guest for a few minutes. So I think that's really helpful because a lot of times you can kind of feel stuck in stuttering therapy because they just talk to you. So they get really used to using their strategies with you as a speech pathologist, but can they use it with other people? So I think it's really important to give them different environments and situations. Um, As far as keeping them engaged over telepractice, I just use, I use Mad Libs, I use Bamboozle, some of those telepractice, things that we've talked about before that elicit conversation, um, really just those authentic conversations I gear more towards as well, because I think it's the most effective for identifying those strategies.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to point out because I know one thing that you that we always focus on in the beginning is education. Two really fun activities that Claire and I have done. One is like fact versus myth and you just come up with like a bunch of simple statements about stuttering and then have them guess if it's true, if it's a fact or if it's a myth. And I think a lot of times kids are really surprised by what's real or what's true about stuttering versus what may just be a perception but really isn't the truth. And another activity that we did, Claire had mentioned talking about your speech helpers is when we were in graduate school and we were working in that intensive clinic, we had a piece of foil and we had tons of different candies. So we had like licorice and M&Ms and jelly beans and chocolate syrup and things like that. And we had each of our students or clients make people and include their little speech helpers. So that's a fun way of
1: including,
0: yeah, that conversation. Inclusive. So that's for kids age like five
1: to 15, maybe. I mean, kids are going to love that regardless because they get to eat the candy after. So might as well make it fun.
0: Yeah, I love that. That was super fun. But other than that, the biggest thing that I would just stress is to make it engaging. And I know Claire had mentioned that, but for example, if you're reading, read something that they like, whether it's about superheroes or football or golf or whatever their interests are. And it may seem like a duh, common sense kind of thing to say, but I think a lot of people, especially in the school setting, are used to using grade level stories, which I occasionally do too, and there is a time and a place for that, but remembering to tie in their interests is huge. And I also think changing it up frequently is helpful, especially at that age when they're little, it can feel like you're doing the exact same thing week after week and that's totally fine because they're engaged and they like it. However, when they're older, like that middle school, high school age, they tend to get more bored and maybe don't want to be at speech. So the more engaging you can make it and the more you can switch it up, the more helpful it can be for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kaylee, for that question. That was a really good one. Our next question comes from Jessica. Her Instagram is at, Miss Jessica's store. She asked, How do you juggle between progress monitoring and an intervention during individual and group speech sessions? Now, this was a doozy. This is a big one. And Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people have a hard time with this. So, great question. Um, Rachel, I'll let you go on this one.
0: Yeah, this is something that definitely can be hard to find a balance with. So, I know for the intervention students that I usually pick up, it's typically articulation only. And That's just what I have experience with, so that's kind of what everything I'm going to say speaks to, but I typically block out a very small amount of time to drill and do five-minute articulation and try and get as many reps in as possible, and I try to do that as many days in a week as I can, and then after a six-week period, reevaluate and see where there are. For progress monitoring, personally, my district is required to take and report data every session. So these are for students that are on my caseload. So I think what's really helpful there is finding a data collection method that you love. And I know that's so hard because I can personally say for the past five years that I've been an SLP, I have changed it every single year. And I don't know that anyone will ever have a perfect fix it all or encompass it all method. But if you do, please send it my way. (laughs) Um, So I think once you have that down, that is really helpful.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think as far as data collection goes, it's definitely a challenge to provide therapy while also taking note of every single trial. So I think that's really where the expertise comes in. And I truly think it It does get easier. So as a CF, I was like,
0: whoa, Mm -hmm. super freaked
1: out because it's hard because you have so many clients or students and you have to take data for them all. And it really does get easier the more you do it. Find your groove, stick with it. Like Rachel said, try and find something that a method of data collection that you feel is good for you because what works for one person might not work for the other. I can say that since my CF, I've been using post-its and I Mm -hmm. truly, that's the only thing I use. I write it down. I write down like little blurbs of their goals or what I'm working on. And then I put my plus and minuses, circles, prompts, whatever next Mm -hmm. to it. Um, I've just done it and I love it because I'm, I can take it anywhere with me. So if I'm in the ground on the ground with my little ones, I stick them to my leg. I continue to just kind of go with it. So, um, that's what I do. But again, you really just have to find what works for you. And if I'm unable to obtain a concrete number for something, I think this is important too. I, I will note something as informally observed because I know it's hard to juggle sometimes, especially when you're with younger kids trying to provide therapy while also taking the data, the data. So, um, I will sometimes just say it was informally observed that the client was participating in verbal routines with minimal cues, blah, blah, blah. As long as you are reporting on something, mm-hmm. sometimes it's okay to have some informal observations because you might have to, you might not get that concrete data all the time. So take a breath. Don't let the pressure override what you're doing because what you're, the therapy you're doing is the most important.
0: Yeah. And If anyone has a great method, we would love to hear it and share (laughs) it. Seriously, please (laughs) let us know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. So the next question comes from Teresa, who is on Instagram at Lady in the Box. We've mentioned her on previous episodes. She is a close friend from grad school. And the first question she sent was, how does one become as cool as you guys, which was hilarious. (laughs) I love that. that. Thanks, Teresa. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming from the teletherapy queen, but she did also ask another question and that was, what is your favorite age to work with? So I personally love working with the littles. I've primarily worked with ages probably about two up until fifth grade, like that 10, 11-ish age for the majority of my career so far. I have worked with some high school students that I did enjoy but for the most part, I'm with the little ones. I would say my only true adult experience was in graduate school, which I enjoyed, but I just haven't had as much exposure, which obviously I'm in the school. So Claire, what about you? I just, I try to find my
1: favorite, but I can't pick because I have so many. And I guess that's a good thing, but I just have never been able to pick an absolute favorite. I went into the field being very set on working with little ones, like early intervention age. So um, like three-year-olds were Mm -hmm. just who I wanted to work with. But after my medical placement, I knew that there was something I loved about working with adults. So um, I immediately pursued a PRN right out of grad school and I've been working with adults ever since um, and kids at the same time. So that's what's really cool about our field too is you can really do both. So if you're full-time in a school or clinic like me, you can also have a PRN position in a hospital where you get some hours on the weekends and holidays or times when you can pick up and you can still keep up with that adult um, knowledge base a little bit if you're interested in it. So Truly, for me, it's across the lifespan. I would say the only age I'm not totally in love with is high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a high school, but I really only I had the moderate to severe classroom, which I feel like is different than you know mm-hmm. high schoolers, high school age, maybe just language. Mm-hmm. disorders and things like that. So, um, that's not really my sweet spot. Teenagers nowadays kind of scare me to be honest. <laughs> so I, that just wouldn't be my area that I'm in love with, but I also don't mind working with them as yeah. well. So our next question comes from Caitlin who direct messaged us and she asked articulation or language. So, um, do we like working with articulation versus like working with language? And that's a hard one too. I would say when I started in the field, um, I guess I, I think I liked articulation more because it was more concrete. I mm-hmm. could figure it out a little easier. Language is way harder, but now language stimulates my mind so much more than our tick does. Um, I feel like I, I do a lot more thinking outside the box with my language kids and a lot more, I have to do a lot more research and a lot more, um, just thought process going into how I'm going to provide therapy for these language kids. Um, but again, you know, I like working with both. What about you, Rachel?
0: I feel like I was the same in the beginning. It was like, Oh, articulation. That's easy. I know how to do that. Language is a little bit more, well, it's not concrete. You kind of have to think outside of the box for that. I will say, you know, I have, I obviously work at the elementary school, but as far as my private practice goes on the side, I'm only seeing about six um, clients right now and they're all three and under. Um, I love that early intervention age and so much of that is play-based language. Language, We're getting that emerging and I love that so so
1: much. Well, and I think it's huge too to make the point For those little, little ones under three, I feel like a lot of parents might come to you and say, or at least have come to me and said, well, I can't understand them. And, but they don't even have the language base yet. And guys, that's so important that language has to come before the speech sounds do, even if their speech sounds are sounding really off and it's a hard time to understand them. um, We got to look at language first because we have to get their vocabulary and their sentences and expanding utterances, all of these things before we target like K's and G's. That's something really crucial, I think.
0: Plus the dreaded R. So real.
1: Don't even get me started. So
0: again, if you have any tips for that, we'd love to hear them.
1: That is definitely an area that I would say I don't enjoy Mm -hmm. therapy because, because I don't see as much progress as I would like because R is just so hard and there's so many times when these older kids come to me with R and I'm like oh Mm -hmm.
0: it's just hard it's hard because my students fall into two groups so we either are tackling R and we're really getting it Mm -hmm. and that's great and we're moving on and now we're dismissed in the school setting or you're still a fifth grader and we're not getting it and it's so hard to even get it in isolation right passing you on, you know, up to, into sixth grade and that's hard. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. Our next question was on Facebook from Pete and he said, how close do you think language skills plays a role in the definition of socioeconomic status, which was a really great question. Such
1: a good question. I love that. Um, So I'll just put my little feeler in for this nature versus nurture. I feel like. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes a family may not have the knowledge or resources because no one before them taught them or helped them. So it's in no way a parent's fault if they don't have, um, you know, these language and learning skills to teach their child, because maybe they weren't taught them themselves. Um, But I do think that it plays a factor in a child's exposure to language and learning, and in turn, their overall development or their rate of development. I did find an article just because this question really kind of triggered that thought process, because I was like, huh, I mean, I, I know what I, that's what I think, but I also wanted to kind of hear what the research thought. Mm -hmm. And I found something on informed SLP. The article is called, um, it's called just talk to your child more, the best advice for every family. It was done. The study was done in 2017 and it took, um, three studies. It just looked at three studies, um, on how mothers from lower socioeconomic settings talk to their children in homes and what it found overall which i thought this was really interesting this was like the main take home was that the amount of caregiver talk might be less important than the types of caregiver talk so i feel like as speech pathologists we're always like talk 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 to your child just talk to them all day long and mm-hmm. we say that to give them as much language as possible however the amount of words you're giving them isn't as important as the types of words you're giving them. So are you giving them a variety of different words? Are you talking to them in different types of ways, such as predicting, projecting, talking about how others feel, um, reporting, so describing, reasoning, so associated with the child's use of those communication functions, why they feel certain ways. So it really went into that is more of a reason that these families in the lower socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. have maybe more language or speech difficulties is because of the types of talking. So maybe they're not being exposed to as much language variety and as much speaking variety Mm -hmm. in different sentence structures and things like that. Um, So from the article they just suggested, we may need to balance encouraging caregivers to talk more with giving children plenty of opportunities to talk. So it's just a balance guys. And that's kind of how it always is. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. And again, that question was great because it really got my brain moving on it. And yeah, I, I like that. that.
0: Another yeah. way to think of it, just to like make it a little more simple, especially for our families is quality versus quantity. And I know you guys have heard us say so many times that if you narrate the things that you're doing, you're exposing your children to 1,000 to 2,000 words an hour. But we do want to make sure that those experiences and you know what you're narrating and what you're doing are really language rich and you know, walk through simple things like sequencing events or asking comprehension, those WH questions, things like that. For sure. So, oh, Claire, you're up. Next one.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're okay. I'm, like, look, I'm actually <laughs> looking for the question for this one because I wanted to read it from the post. So here oh, it is. Yeah. Um, just because I thought the background that he gave, this was also from Pete, the background he gave for this question was really interesting as well. Um, so he said, I live in Toledo. Toledo's in Ohio, if you don't know. Um, I work in trucking, giving me the ability to talk to people from all over, all over the world who have, who have came here for work. And I love the diversity. How many different speech patterns do you see a speech therapist? I was talking, this is still Pete, talking, he says, I was talking to a guy from Morocco the other day, and he had rolling R's in quotes in his mm-hmm. speech. So I thought that was super interesting. And I love that, you know, someone that isn't in the area of speech therapy identifies that because it's so true. Um, so I love that we kind of get to talk about this and we kind of get to put that little pull in for speech and language difference. And that there's so much to be said for that. So speech and language disorders are different than speech and language differences. And if we need to say that again, we will, but I think (laughs) that's a really important take home for anything um, that we're doing with speech and language. And it's important for us as speech pathologists to know those cultural and demographic speech and language differences. And a good example for me, I feel like is when I moved to Virginia. So I lived in Ohio my entire life. Um, Midwest, very just American, just wholesome American town. So we're very, we don't really have much differences in our speech. Um, And I moved South a couple months ago to Virginia, which isn't you know, the deep South, but it is South. And it's been interesting to see some of the clients come in, especially maybe not so much the clients themselves, but a lot of the parents and grandparents I've talked to, um, that have more of that Southern accent. So they have longer vowel durations as really kind of that quality of the Southern speaking. And it's just different. And I think. I hadn't really thought about it before, but it's something that you really need to, that I especially moving into a different area really need to take into account because these differences doesn't mean a language disorder. It's just, you know, how they've grown up. And it's something that needs to be taken into account in a speech and language evaluation is these patterns that are different. But other than that, I really haven't come across any crazy um, speech pattern differences as far as, um, like people from Morocco, that's really cool mm-hmm. or different accents. That's what I'm trying to think of. Um, I haven't really come across a ton of different
0: accents. Have you Rachel? Um, no, but I do love this question. Cause I feel like it's digging into, something deeper. And for those of you that are new to the podcast or you've only listened for a couple episodes, our very first episode was all about diversity and cultural considerations. So if you guys have the chance, go listen to that. And if you go on our website, letstalkaboutspeech.com and go to the episodes tab, under the first episode, there are a ton of links that we included um, for things like that. And I think that's really interesting because I've been hearing lately the thought is – because previously, speech therapists could treat for accent modification or reduction. And as of late, that's kind of frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties into this really nicely. So make sure you check out those links because there is some really interesting information on there about that.
1: And accent modification is definitely – I think it's important to know it's elective. So Mm -hmm. it's not something that we as speech therapists are ever going to say – you need to do this because you have an accent that we want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely something that the client seeks out possibly because they want to be more effective in work or with their significant Mm -hmm. other or whatever it is. But I agree. I feel like lately it's because of everything going on in the world. Um, It's just been something a little more fragile Mm -hmm. because we don't want to take away people's language differences if that's what's going on.
0: Yeah, and that's important for someone Mm -hmm. to hold on to, for sure. So our next question was from Shannon, who also DM'd us on Instagram, and she said, how do you make therapy engaging for middle school and high school students? Which we did touch on this a little bit, and honestly, my biggest takeaway from this is tying in their interests. And switching it up so you're not doing the exact same thing week after week because that gets boring. That would be boring for you as an adult. So you have to think about this high school or middle school student that doesn't want to be pulled out of class and wants to be with their friends and doesn't want to go to speech. So making it engaging is probably the key.
1: Something for middle schoolers that I used to do, too, is bring your friend to speech day, and that was kind of fun sometimes. Some of them were too embarrassed and didn't like it, but some of them actually really did. So um, if you're able to do that within your school, I know things are different now, but um, in normal times, it was a lot easier to you know, talk to the teachers beforehand and see if they could bring someone that wasn't in speech in there and you could do, especially with social language kids or, um, you know, some of the, some of the less intense needs kids, um, so that they could kind of have some control in that and share their experiences in speech with a friend that doesn't go to speech, just making it as positive of an experience as possible and spoiler alert, we are, we have a future episode that is going to be focusing on older kids. We have a very special guest for that one. So stay tuned for that. Shannon, because that will definitely be an episode that you will want to listen to.
0: Yeah. And another thing that I would add to this is I do lunch groups. um, And a lot of times I typically do these like with my older third, fourth, fifth graders. And I've heard several times kids say, it didn't even feel like speech therapy or that was speech. I thought we were just hanging out. So even little things like that, taking it out of the come sit in my office while I sit across from you and we work on this, that can make it fun and relatable also. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the next question, actually, we got from a few moms. And I love this question. I think this is really important important as well, was when should I send my child to speech? So especially for moms, the moms that approached us were moms of, kids that were maybe just a little over a year old, maybe Mm. a little younger than 18 months. So really between that 12 to 18 month range. Um, And my recommendation. So, well, first let let me give the background of for our clinic that I worked at, we usually didn't see kids younger than 18 months. That was kind of the that age was when we would start seeing them. However, that doesn't mean you can't get them on a wait list. If you have concerns, my advice for moms will always be to go with your gut. I feel like every mom that approaches me with this question says their pediatrician says it's fine and not to worry, but they are worried and you know, you know, your child the best. So if you feel like something's not right, um, like you really want to see where they're at on that average, then see if you can get them into an evaluation. It's not going to hurt. Maybe they will come right on track and it'll ease your concerns. Maybe they'll come out a little bit delayed and you'll have a therapist that will help you. So either way, you're your child's advocate. And you need to just go with what you feel. Um, That being said, I know it's harder when you get into the school to get evals and things like that. So this is more for just little ones um, where you can maybe take them to an outpatient clinic or a private evaluation that you don't need maybe a referral for. But I just think it is important um, to know your child and know when to seek out help and know that it's okay to seek out help.
0: Yeah. And this is really where that early intervention piece comes in because the earlier you're seeking out intervention and therapies and things like that, the easier typically it will be and the more progress typically you will see. So like Claire said, it never hurts to even reach out to a speech therapist for a consultation. I've had many families reach out to me and say that these are their concerns and what's my take on that. And it doesn't cost anything, right? You're just picking speech pathologist brain and seeing what their thoughts are. And you either come out of that meeting knowing, okay, I think we're good right now, or okay, I want to move forward with an evaluation and kind of see what comes from it. But I Mm -hmm. so agree that just go with your gut for sure so our next question this was also from a couple moms lately and it kind of ties into this one but if your child is already seeing a speech therapist at school should they also go to private or outpatient services and i know claire and i our philosophies are aligned with this and it never hurts and i think if you can get in like claire said there's crazy waitlist places and you might have better luck with a smaller private practice Versus like an outpatient clinic or something like that. But I just, I think it's important. And that way you can get two people, the school therapist and the outpatient or the private practice therapist on the same train. And we're both working on the same things. And typically in that kind of situation, you'll see more progress.
1: Exactly. Yes. There will never be anything bad that comes from having more therapy, especially when it's something that is increasing their language or their speech sounds or whatever it is. I think that most of the older kids, the school age kids that I saw in the clinic also saw a speech therapist at school and it was just something extra and something to hopefully get them on track sooner. So I, I agree. I think it's important yeah so our our next question is our last question, I think at least for this round we had again we had a lot of questions, so we appreciate you guys and we will definitely be um possibly doing another one of these or maybe throwing it into another uh episode so that we can answer your guys's questions but this is the last one, and I love it. It's what is your favorite part about being a speech therapist so this is a loaded question too because there are so many things, but I guess for me, um, my favorite part is really just being that helper. So, you know, you hear a lot about the helping professions. There are so many helping professions and it's wonderful. And I just feel as a speech therapist, like this was my calling to help people communicate. And Every day I'm learning something new and I feel like that's what's really exciting about our field is we can help people in so many different ways and I just love it and I love learning new things all the time and it's just taken me so far.
0: I know this question makes me like a little emotional Emotional, because I know like if you guys have seen us on Instagram or heard us in previous episodes, you keep hearing us talk about those your words matter shirt. And that's kind of like my mantra. And I'm sure it applies to a lot of speech therapists, but the importance of someone having a voice and their ability to express their needs and wants is so important. And no one should ever have to go without that. So that's really, I mean, that's my favorite part and that's my drive. And I just feel like in this profession, we have the ability to make such an impact on Children and adults and throughout the lifespan, and I just love it. There, re- I really have no complaints. I that was beautiful. Nobody
1: should ever have to go without that. Yeah. That communication, seriously, it like gives me goosebumps. I just love it, and I think what we do is important. And I think it's cool to feel like that in your career that what you're doing is important and matters. And um, It's, it's great. And I hope that all of you therapists, speech therapists listening out there feel the same way and, um, are really loving, even as stressful as it can be, especially now we're still making a difference and we're still helping people. So also we wanted to going off of that, since Rachel mentioned actually those shirts, don't forget about the shirt campaign that's going on right now. It actually ends September 2nd, which is Wednesday of this week. So don't forget to order your shirts. Your words matter with the rainbow on the front. You can get them in long sleeve or short sleeve and donations are made to the Children's Lebanon crisis relief fund from these shirts. And we are really excited about the response we've gotten so far. We'd love to get as many as possible. So please get your orders in.
0: Yeah, um, that wraps up this episode, guys. I had so much fun answering your questions, and I'm excited to hopefully do another episode like this, like Claire mentioned. So thank you again for joining us. And as always, you can find me, Rachel, on Instagram at supersweetspeech. And if you or anyone you know is in need of speech therapy in Southeast Michigan, feel free to email me at speechissupersweet at gmail. And you can also follow us, the Let's Talk About Speech podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. So make sure you give those a like and a follow. And don't forget to check out our website, letstalkaboutspeech.com.
1: And you can find me, Claire, on Instagram at kindly underscore speech or my Facebook page, kindly speech LLC. And if anyone in Virginia or Ohio is in need of speech teletherapy, please contact me kindlyspeechllc at gmail.com. Rachel and I also have the email for the podcast. Let's talk about speech podcast at gmail.com. Email us with questions that you have suggestions for future episodes, um, or really just to say, hi, we love hearing from you guys and we appreciate all of your feedback. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Bye.